0: and welcome to the Recovering God podcast. This is a platform for people to explore issues that affect the faith lives of Christian women. We hope you find this episode interesting.
1: Hello Alison. Hello Grace. How are you? Well I'm good thank you. Yeah. Feels like a long time, but it is a long time as we last recorded. Yeah,
0: yeah, we had a little break, didn't we, last month? We did. It's bizarre.
1: We didn't really have a break, though, did
0: we? No, <laughs> it wasn't a refreshing. It wasn't a sabbatical or anything like
1: that. <laughs> just, we were so busy with work that the podcast had to, you know, wait because it doesn't get. It's, it's not the way we earn any money.
0: <laughs> no, apologies, dear listener, if you missed your <laughs> your monthly dose of feminism, but yeah, we're back now. We are indeed. And you know what, Alison? It's November, and you know what that means? No, it's our one-year anniversary.
1: Hey, look at us—a year. I, did, I didn't get you anything. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't get you anything either. But then it would be difficult to send it. You know, like give it. I think you could send to the post, hey, a year on, what about that? Yes. After those early beginnings when I said to you, Grace, that's a really good idea to do a podcast. And you went, no. <laughs> and I went, yes. I think it really is a good idea. And we've spoken to so many incredible people in the
0: last year. We have. We have indeed. I won't ask you who your favourite has been, because that's like asking you to choose between children. You can't choose a favourite. <laughs> no. No, that, that
1: would be wrong. <laughs> so who are we listening to this month, with Alison? So we're listening to Nicola Slee, who is famous Christian feminist, I think it's safe to say. she That's what she's known for, really. Lots of her writing is about feminism she teaches feminism she's just written a book about sabbath and i read it and was interested to know more about sabbath because she said that sabbath is a feminist issue and i'm like okay let's talk about how that could be there was an interesting ideas i mean you could i basically could spend a day talking to her about issue so it's kind of honing down on what what the key things are I have to say I've been
0: really really looking forward to this interview Nicholas Lee she writes in such an accessible way Mm. and I I got her book Sabbath when it came out and devoured it and found it so challenging so yes very lucky that we get to interview her and talk about that
1: later on brilliant let's listen to it Let's. Nicola Lee is a well-known feminist author, poet, and academic. She joins me today to talk about Sabbath as a feminist issue after writing her latest book, Sabbath: The Hidden Heartbeat of Our Lives. Thank you for joining me today, Nicola. My pleasure. So, can you, we just start by, we always ask people to do this, telling us briefly about yourself so that we understand who you are, just in case people don't know who you are. Tell us a bit about your Christian faith and how that's been shaped and something about your history.
2: Yeah, well, I'm one of these people, in a way, I'm a kind of cradle cradle Christian in that I was born and brought up in a Christian family in rural North Devon, a Methodist church-going family, and I was taken... To church from a very early age and I actually, I can't, you know, my mem- earliest memories, by then I was already going to chapel and so I don't really remember a time when church wasn't part of my life and I went to a Methodist girls school, my secondary school, so faith was very much part and parcel of the rhythm of school life as well as home life. I had the kind of classic evangelical conversion when I was 13 when we had some visiting Methodist deaconesses come to our little chapel in um, North Devon. And, it you know, it's extraordinary. I look back and I think, 13, I hadn't really done very much. I hadn't had time to do a lot of sinning, but it did have a dramatic impact on my life. And I I felt it made a huge change. It was probably more of an internal and external change. But just the sense of God, and I think particularly Jesus, becoming really alive to me in a way that it never quite had before and that I sensed God as a personal presence. Just almost like suddenly like switching a light on, you know. But of course all that earlier stuff was there, I suppose, as a sort of foundation. Um so then my teenage years and into my early twenties were very much shaped by evangelical and, and also charismatic kind of groups and circles. So I carried on going to our little Methodist chapel, but I also got involved in other things. I went to a non-denominational evangelical sort of church and i started going to post green no one nowadays will have ever heard of post green but in the 70s post green was um, a sort of charismatic center in uh, dorset where the fisher folk hung out quite a bit you might people might have heard of the fisher folk and i used to go on youth camps every year uh, which was sort of like the highlight of my year of getting together with other young christians and you know hearing lots of good Bible talks and singing in tongues and dancing in the spirit and all this kind of stuff. And then I went to university and read theology. And I suppose that started a different kind of journey of starting to think about my faith a bit more intellectually and perhaps broadening out. I became an Anglican when I went to university, and Anglican liturgy and so on all became very important to me and I suppose I was very much influenced there by classic liberal Anglicanism and liberal theology and it also during my university years, I became a feminist and so I suppose at that point I started to think about what did it mean to be a feminist and a Christian? Perhaps I can just say in summary so you know, I've my almost my entire working life has been in in the church and in education as a as a lay person, teaching adults, preparing clergy, but also lay people for ministry of different sorts in the church and theological education. So that's my kind of world of work, and that's been, you know I love doing that, and that's been very very important to me, and that's been one of the arenas where I've been lucky enough to be able to teach feminist theology and other things that I'm passionate about. So talking about feminist theology, which is really important
1: to you and very important to me, a question that we always ask people, and it's going to be interesting to see what you say. (laughs) (laughs) Would you call
2: yourself a Christian feminist and why or why not? Absolutely would I call myself a Christian feminist. Yes, certainly. And I have called myself a Christian feminist for a very long time I mean in a way the Christian bit is obvious isn't it so I don't know what more to say about that but the feminine I know lots of people there's this kind of lots of people will not identify with a feminist title and there's that thing about I'm not a feminist but you know lots of people will say I'm really proud and glad to be a feminist I, I think my feminism was very much shaped by sort of second wave feminism of the of the kind of late 70s 80s and i just think it's really important to say i'm a feminist and to claim that title and not to see it as a dirty word so you know i'm i'm out and proud as they say so what would you say a feminist was how would you define feminist i mean there's all sorts of ways aren't there but you know you i could maybe have to go for something really simple like a feminist is someone who believes that women are you know, full human beings and is committed to the full humanity of every single human being made in the image of God and overcoming some of the things that stop women and girls really believing and knowing that.
1: Thank you. So let's move on to your book about the Sabbath. The first thing I wanted to ask was, what do you mean by Sabbath? What what does that actually mean? What are you talking about?
2: Yeah, I think in the book, I use the notion of Sabbath quite broadly. So at one level, of course, Sabbath is one day in seven that the Bible teaches us to keep as sacred time for God and for rest but I think Sabbath is also more of a principle that you can apply not just to that one day Sunday which you know for Christians it's Sunday for, for Jews of course it's it's Saturday I think you can take it as much more of a principle about the way we live our lives and You can have longer or shorter Sabbaths. You can have tiny little Sabbaths within a day. You can have, like, I've just been fortunate to have had a sabbatical of three months, you know, longer periods within a working life. And the Bible also has the tradition of jubilee of, you know, every seven times seven years, you know, the lamb taking a rest. So I think the principle can be applied much more broadly than simply the idea of taking one day in seven as a day of rest although that's you know that's a good idea but it's I think it's much bigger than that really. Thank you that's helpful. So why do you think it's so important? I think it's really important because I don't know the way that many of us in the developed Western world seem to live our lives. I think the pace, I mean this just sounds like a truism really, but the pace of life for many of us has become ridiculous and frenetic. And there are lots of social, political, institutional pressures that mean that those of us who are fortunate enough to have work are constantly under pressure and you know the work is never ever done and there seems to be ever more and more and more of it. And I think our churches are infected, actually, by that sort of compulsive workaholism, I'm going to call it. Our churches are infested by that too. At a time when churches are really feeling the pinch of, you know, decline in in, in many of the denominations, declining numbers, declining resources, you know, declining numbers of clergy. So more and more is asked of fewer and fewer people, and that can lead to a culture I think of really a really unhealthy culture of workaholism so sabbath it seems to me which is important for all times and places but maybe particularly important for us now to come against some of that sort of culture and invite us to think about time and work differently yeah thank you when I asked you about speaking about
1: sabbath for the podcast you said that sabbath is a feminist issue can you tell us more about that Please.
2: yeah I for all sorts of reasons I mean I think it's still the case in our world that when we think about you know we think about burdens of work women still in many in I would say probably in most cultures women bear particularly heavy burdens of work you know the double and triple burdens that are often talked about where women so like in the UK I guess the vast majority of women now would work outside the home, but they still often do the lion's share of work within the home, domestic work, you know, childcare, and so on, care of elderly parents. So they're often doing that sort of double share of work. In other cultures in the world, of course, women might also be, you know, working out on the, on the land in the fields and then they're expected to come back and prepare the meal for the men who come in and, you know, sit down so I think there's still a really big political issue for women about w- women being expected to bear the burden of work and overwork, which Sabbath can speak into. Um, yeah, it's about the way we live our lives. It's about the way we understand time and our use of time. It, in a way, it's a sort of discipline of self-care and self-respect as well as respect and care for the other. And I think that's also extremely important for women, who we can sometimes struggle to care for ourselves in the way that God, I think, you know, desires us to do. Because we've been, women are often socialized to care for others and put others first. And, you know, that can be seen as a Christian ordinance to serve others before, you know, don't think about yourself, put yourself last and all of that stuff. And Sabbath addresses that helpfully, I think, and says, no, you know, Sabbath is about, everyone has the right to Sabbath. And that's, to me, it's one of the really important things about the Sabbath command. It's to everybody. It's to the men, it's to the women, it's to the servants, it's for the animals, it's for the land, you know. Everybody's included in that Sabbath ordinance of rest. So it's also a radically, so so there's something about the Sabbath principle that is radically egalitarian and levelling. It levels all the powers because, you know, the slave has as much right to the Sabbath as the master and the donkey has enough as much right for the rest on the Sabbath as, you know, the king. So I was, as I was
1: reading your book, I was thinking, what does Sabbath look like for me? Mm. So I was thinking about, I mean, when Grace and I talk about this, she may have more comments about this because she's got young children and I haven't. And I, But as I was reading your book, I was thinking, what does Sabbath look like for me and how, how is that marked? And actually reading the book has made me realize how little I mark the Sabbath now. There was a passing comment that Elaine Storkey made actually when I interviewed her something to do with Sabbath, and that made me think, oh yeah, I need to do something about this. And now reading your book, I think God's basically on my case for come on, Alice, and sort this out. You need <laughs> you need to take this seriously. You need to have some kind of day of of rest in some way.
2: So what? How do you mark your Sabbath? We have a real sort of rhythm about the weekends, actually. So I'm somebody I'm, I sometimes will work on a weekend, but I'd much rather. Work long days, Monday to Friday, you know, work 12 hour days or whatever, so that come Saturday, Sunday, I'm not under pressure to work, or if I do work, it would be something that will feel, feels less like work, like reading something. So, Saturdays we try and do all the domestic stuff, really, you know, cleaning the house, going for a shop, getting everything ready. And so, and you know, I don't know that I consciously think about that as preparation for the Sabbath. It's interesting, I'm just thinking this now. But actually, I think there is something quite important for me about the fact that come Saturday evening, which of course is when the Sabbath starts, the house is clean, there's clean, you know, there's nice fresh flowers in the grate. So it does feel like that's welcoming the Sabbath in, which I think is what Jewish women, you know, welcome Shabbat. And then Sunday is a day of prioritising worship in and going to church and obviously now these days kind of going you know online to a live streaming or something and it's often a day where we might go for a walk uh, and do good food i'm feeling like oh gosh i'm very jewish here because you know all this sort of it, having a really good sunday lunch it isn't usually in the middle of the day it's usually on sunday evening but you know proper traditional roast with veg and you know nice wine and a proper pudding so sort of again that thing about relishing and, and you know I'm not if I absolutely have to do some work catching up with stuff, then I'm not I'm not totally rigid about it. I, I would if I had to just because you know that's how it's fallen. But I try not to, and it feels something it's like about giving my brain a rest again. I I think I'm somebody who when I work and engage, I engage quite intensely. And I really need sort of gaps where I'm not doing that. So, again, not going online much. I would on Saturday, maybe. I'd probably look look at emails. But on Sunday, I try not to, really. Mm. I just need that kind of break from engaging in my brain and just something. So, for me, there's something about Sabbath, which is around the spaces, finding spaces. And I think how you do that and almost finding the gaps. I think in a lot of our lives, there are gaps that are already there And that could be anything from waiting for the bus to, I don't know, waiting for something to be ready to take out of the oven. I mean, mean, often tiny little gaps, really, but they're there. And can we sort of treasure them and relish them and really enjoy them rather than just ignoring them and not seeing them? So I think everybody has to do that. You have to find a way of doing that. And even if you've got children, and particularly young children, who are needing a lot of time and attention, there still are gaps because they do have to sleep at some point. Um, but maybe also being with your child and not being able to do other things, maybe there's a way in which that becomes a sort of gap from, you know, from other kinds of work that can be enjoyed. I don't know, that might, be, that might sound horribly romantic and I'm not having to do it. So Yeah, playing a game, if you like games or yeah, family, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Margaret Hepworth I mean It's a really old book now, but Margaret Hepworth book, *Motherhood and God*, which I, I when, it, when I read it, it had a real impact on me. And she talked about the way in which nursing a, a, a baby at the breast, for example, for her became a new way of praying. And you know, being awake in the night um, when everybody else is asleep, and you're just there with your child, and she, for her that was a real way that she experienced. She, as she nourished her own child with her body, she experienced God nourishing her so I think there are ways that caring for another can you know can also be nourishing for the self sometimes not always I mean and sometimes for women it's really important to say I'm just going to take this little gap and what might it might be five minutes it might be 10 minutes it might be an hour might not be a whole day but you know I am going to take this little gap just for me and I'm not going to be in this little space thinking about caring for somebody else
0: Mm. yeah
2: that's great I'm just thinking I've just realized while I'm
1: listening to you talking that a few interviews back we spoke to Rhiannon Grant uh, about language language for Mm. God Mm. and I asked her for some resources and she said oh well you know Off the top of my head, you know, you could always Nicholas Lee has got some very good things about, uh, and talks about Krista. Um, So while I've got you, (laughs) yeah, can you just tell us about about that that? Christa image because I'm guessing that a lot of the people listening will never have heard that at
2: all and what that is and how that works it's actually been around for quite a while it's been around for three or four decades the actual title of Christa comes from a sculpture that was created by a British artist living in New York and in the 70s she created this sculpture of a crucified woman and she called it Christa and it was um, exhibited in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, New York, and it created an absolutely massive furore, and people thought it was blasphemous, and goodness knows what, and it was actually taken down. However many years later, what is it, 30, 40 years later, it's actually now back up in the in the cathedral. And I, I was um, lucky enough to see it a couple of years ago. But She wasn't the only one, actually. Interestingly, other artists at the same time, not knowing about each other at all, were producing similar kind of images of like a female Christ figure. And then feminist theologians began to take that idea up and write about it. Um, So it's been in the literature of feminist theology for a while. And I suppose I've known about it for a long while, but... I've been, it's been part of my journey over the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years or so, as part of of a wider journey for me of learning to name God in feminine terms. And that's something I've had to practice and learn. It didn't necessarily come easily. And I suppose initially I thought about that as God, God, the creator, God, the father, but then thinking, well, maybe I need to think about ways of thinking of Christ in a broader way. Not Jesus. Jesus, the man, was obviously male and Palestinian and Jewish and, you know, lived at a certain time in history. And there are all those particulars about Jesus that can't be changed. But Christ, the risen Christ, is much, much broader than that. The risen Christ is not male or female can be either or none, you know, the risen Christ and I don't think is Jewish-Palestinian, the risen Christ could be African or Asian or, you know, Chinese. I think as part of that journey, to me, it became very liberating to think about Christ as more than male, as potentially manifesting in female terms. And I've written the book and uh, wrote a whole lot of sort of prayers and poems. Sometimes in the imagining, imagining, um, imagining almost like Jesus had come as a girl. And some of the poems are sort of, you know, playing with that idea. But perhaps more actually praying to the Christ now in female terms. And I found that really helpful and really liberating for me without denying that Jesus was male does that make
1: any sense it makes a lot of sense it's really helpful thanks and that builds really well on on what Rhiannon was saying um she was we were talking about metaphors really for God but that's kind of you've added to that by talking about Christ because I think there is a temptation to think of Jesus now as a man yeah yeah
2: yeah
1: now is not Jesus Janet Jesus is the Christ so that's that's helpful that's great and um the book's called The Risen Christa, isn't it? Seeking, yeah, Seeking no, the Risen Seeking Christa. Seeking the Risen Christa. Yeah, you mm. can put that in the note, show notes. That's great. Thank you. So can you tell us what your image of God is now?
2: Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I do this talk at, at Queen's, and Robert Beckford and I have done it together the last couple of years, where we talk about our changing, our changing understandings and images of, of Jesus, actually, Christ, And one of the things I would say at the end of that is it's much more difficult for me to say now what my image or understanding of Christ is because somehow when you're in it, it's much more difficult to identify it. It's like when you look back, you can see it much more clearly. But I think I'd want to say a couple of things. One is that I think I have a whole plethora of images and terms that I want to be able to use freely. So, yeah, I will address God as father, but also mother. I'm actually working, so so my next book that I'm working on now is I'm doing a whole series of responses to the Lord's Prayer and I'm using the, the terms Abba, Amma. So, you know, Abba, the kind of daddy, but Amma is also the sort of mother, mummy. But they're not just daddy, mummy. I think I really love praying to God as Abba Amma which I suppose is mother father but it, because it's Aramaic it somehow feels different than just praying to God as father mother um, so I will certainly use male and female gender terms of God but also um, non-gendered terms or gender you know friend which can be of course either male or female I think I'm on a journey beyond the gender binary and I don't want I I think, you know, we as a society and perhaps we as a church are on a huge journey about trying to understand how gender operates and getting beyond a sort of simplistic gender binary. And I don't want God to be caught up in some sort of gender binary. So it's important to me that there's a freedom in experimenting and finding new terms for God. And I think the Bible, you know, the Bible has so many extraordinary images for God. I don't think most Christians use probably, you know, a hundredth of the images, uh, you know. So there's all this stuff about well, we need to be biblical. And then I want to say, okay, great, be biblical, be more biblical. Don't just call God Father and Lord. You know, call God a ravening, devouring mother bear or, you know, an eagle capturing her young and protecting them in the nest. Or oh, There's just there's le- the trickster God. You know, there's, there's hundreds of these extraordinary images. And we should explore those. More, but I think they also give us permission not just permission, they're really encouraging us to create our own images, you know. So, I that's really important to me to have lots of different images of God and constantly finding new ones. At the same time, I increasingly value the apophatic tradition, the sort of mystical tradition which doesn't really work with images that works, that that finds God in silence and in darkness and in sort of no images or the cancellation of images because God is bigger and greater and more mysterious and more complex than any image, even any multitude of images could ever capture. So often in my prayer, I'm not even really using any terms for God or I might start there. Because I use, you know, I do use set prayers in a liturgy, uh, either, you know, I mean, I use set Anglican liturgy, but I also use bits of Jib Cotter or Janet Morley or whatever. That might be the starting place, but then I'll sort of go much more into silence and where I don't really have a particular image. I'm just in the presence or sometimes in the absence of God. Sometimes it's just like sitting there and you have to just believe, trust. God is there, but I don't particularly feel God or God isn't saying anything to me you know maybe that's okay because again when you know and love somebody deeply you know you don't always have anything to say to each other you just sit there and you just and you don't even look at each other anymore because you sort of know what you look like you just sit there and are content to be there and yet yeah, as i'm saying that even you know when you when you when you are in a partnership with somebody over decades there's always more to discover. The person you never really, you never capture the person. So there's always more strangeness to uncover, and I suppose that's also true in the journey with God. Mm. Does that does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, that's lovely. Thank you. That really builds on some things that we've
1: been talking about, Grace and I, in previous episodes. So that's really helpful, thank you, because you've actually said it much more eloquently than we could. So I'm going to ask you the last question. What do you think? Is oh the most, no, this terrible what, last question. Yes, <laughs> terrible last question. What do you think is the most important issue affecting
2: Christian women today? Oh my life! I don't know. <laughs> I think right now, and this is in a way, this is for this is for everybody. This isn't just for Christian women. I think we're at a time, aren't we, with you know, with climate catastrophe, with coronavirus. We're at a time where we're it's like it's like the universe is saying to us, for God's sake, you know, wake up, wake up to the reality of how you're living and what you're doing to this planet Earth. And before it's too late, find another way to be. And women and feminists in particular, you know, have got a lot to say into that because feminists have done a lot of work on the cherishing of the body and the cherishing of the earth and the living of life in a way that's respectful and that doesn't try to take too much. I think we've got to learn about If we don't learn that soon, it's going to be too late. So in a way, there's nothing more serious than that, really. It seems to me that's the huge issue for us all. But I do think women, well, feminists, perhaps eco-feminists, have got a great deal to say about that journey and i hope i hope christian women might listen to that but others as well that's interesting because you finish your book talking
1: about uh if i've got it right nature teaching us things Mm -hmm. and taking time in nature and as i was reading that i was thinking actually this time with the pandemic for a lot of people has made us engage with nature a lot more than we have ever done never have I seen so many people out in parks than I have during this time oh I know what I was going to ask you your next book coming out which we'll put information about on the um, the show notes is uh another overtly feminist book isn't it
2: yes it is so this is actually it's a collection it's it, you know cause case I'm sounding like I'm just churning out books by the dozen, it's a collection of things that I've written previously, um, about half of which has been published, but about half of which hasn't. So it's it's a whole kind of collection, really, of things that I've been writing and thinking about for donkey's years. It's called Fragments for Fractured Times, What Feminists... Practical Theology Brings to the Table, and it's reflecting on things like prayer, spirituality, images for God, so there's a whole section actually on Krista. On this
1: really, really is the last question, Nicola. Is there anything that you would recommend to somebody who is just trying to find out about Christian
2: feminism? Of course, I've got to say my own book, Faith and Feminism, which is a good little introduction to Christian feminist theology. And although it's quite old now, I think it's still, people have said it's a accessible short read with lots of, but that it introduces a lot of material. And there are, there are quite a number of little introductions to feminist theology, which are out there, which are worth reading. Um, Natalie Watson has written one, various people. I think there are all sorts of ways of you know, good good reads. I mean, I think I have something like Alice Walker's *The Color Purple*, which again is quite an old novel now, but it's an amazing
1: novel. Thank you for those recommendations, and thank you too for coming to talk to us on the Recovering God podcast. It's been an absolute
2: delight. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. What did you think? That was fantastic. I've been really looking forward to it, like I said, and she didn't disappoint at all. I have to say, I think she's possibly given the most enthusiastic answer to the question of, would you call yourself a Christian feminist? <laughs> <laughs> all our other guests have said, oh, yes to one part, no to another part, or "or maybe, or this is how I'd frame it, and, and given really brilliant answers to those and got us really thinking about what we think of as feminism. But Nicholas Lee, yes, absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent, very enthusiastic in her answer there.
1: Yeah, absolutely, it was great. It's like, yes, I am absolutely a feminist. I, and when I asked her to define it, she said, "I'll written it down because I'm going to, I'm going to use it as a quote." I think she said, "In its simplest form." A feminist is someone who believes that women are full human beings and is committed to the full humanity of every single human being made in the image of God and overcoming some of the things that stop women and girls believing and knowing that, which I thought was a nice definition. Mm, I wrote just, that down as well. She just made it. I oh, did you. She just made it up on the spot, as you do.
0: That's a really, a really nice, simple answer because there is a lot of baggage with feminism, and rightly, you know, we have groups that move off in a different direction or that want to distance themselves a little bit from it or um, or use a different name to to represent something more specific. Like womanism, um, for example, rightly has distanced itself somewhere, focusing on something um, much more specific, the experiences of, of women of colour. But I did like that very simple definition. I think to me, that's what feminism is, away from all the trappings of, well, do you believe this? Do you believe that? And do you you know stand with this particular agenda or, or or this particular viewpoint and if you don't have this viewpoint you're not a feminist i like that a simpler definition that's a little bit more all encompassing i think it's great you listen to that and
1: then you think well wouldn't everybody just join you know most people in most societies would actually agree that women are for human beings and would want to promote that I think that's true but I think when you then get
0: down to changing society that's when it gets more complicated and people don't like what that implies and what that means and the changes they may have to make as a result of it Mm. you know plenty of people will say I believe women are full human beings and made in the image of God etc but if you say okay so let's move towards equal pay let's move towards women being ordained let's you know make these changes that then threaten the the norms and the hierarchies that exist that's when saying that is one thing but actually living it out is a slightly different thing I think
1: yeah I've had a um, questionnaire which I must send to you actually from Birmingham City Council this very week On the issue of equality. So, of course, I couldn't ignore that. As busy as I was, went on it. But saying, you know, as Birmingham City Council is committed to uh, equality and inclusivity, should we make it mandatory? For every interview, we should have one, at least one UK minority ethnic person and one woman. Hmm. And I replied saying, no, for every interview, we should have at least 50% women (laughs) and at least one person who is UK minority ethnic, depending Mm. on the makeup of the population in Birmingham. Mm. Wonder how they'll cope with that answer. Yes.
0: Well, and possibly more in some cases, depending on the makeup of the group that, that the interview is, is being done for. You know, if, if it's a group that consists entirely of white men, then actually there's a bit more of a pressing need for more diversity in that group, to, you know, and, and efforts need to be made to make sure that that is,
1: that is done and, and represented. But, yeah, <sighs> see, I've got to send it to you and to some other people who I know will have other thoughts that will be very good. Mm, we'll see. Um, moving back to Nicola's interview...
0: I love what she said about the pace of life in the Western world. And she was saying that it is the pace of life is too much, that we're, we're expected to do too much, we're expected to move too fast, and we, we place those expectations on ourselves and on other people. And she said that churches are infected by this as well. What did you think of that claim? I think she's
1: right. And I, I think the problem is that we are often in a lot of churches expected to be at church a lot and doing a lot of things at church which actually leave very little time for other things. I think we are excessively busy. Yeah I think I wrote down as
0: well that the sense that we should be constantly doing things in church is quite closely tied in with the idea that we're serving isn't it? If you're not doing things, then you're not serving in church, and there can be a great deal of pressure on people who don't seem to be doing or serving in a ministry. When that's such a a, a value judgment that's being placed on people's lives, who are perhaps looking to protect their time a little bit more. And yeah, there are there are definitely people who who thrive off. Doing lots of things and want to be busy and and all of that, but we can't expect the same from everybody. I think it depends on your commitment elsewhere, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and as Nicola mentioned, women carry a lot of the burden of work. By that meaning, particularly unpaid work and household duties and care, sort of voluntary roles as well. And so, on top of the work that women are already doing bringing this round to a feminist issue you then have the expectations of serving in churches as well that can place additional pressures on women i think i i really should have looked up where this was but really early on in the sort of feminist theology movement uh, one of the first articles on feminist theology was about the christian idea of sin and of self sacrifice and how that's actually not very helpful for women mm. Because for a lot of men, that's telling them to do something that's against what society tells them to do, you know, to be sacrificial, to be putting aside your power and all those sorts of things. But actually for women, society is making us do that anyway on a regular basis. Actually, that's an unhelpful theology for women. And so this idea that Sabbath, the idea of self-care and taking time away from doing is for everybody for women as well as men is a really important thing in the bible you know forcing us to rest it's for it's for animals it's for the land it's it's for absolutely everything in creation isn't it yeah it's
1: great so how do you get on with the whole sabbath thing then because it's really made me rethink i mean i was already starting to rethink you know that thing about do you take moments with the children that are kind of like sabbath going for walks or whatever it is that'll sound very idyllic i think time with the children there's
0: there's probably a lot of that like going for walks and things in my day anyway um when the days that i'm at home with them we as a family are trying to reduce the amount of things that we do at the moment and bring a bit more margin into our lives in general but as for a a time in the week that we set aside This is something that I've been, I guess, convicted of for years. It keeps coming up again and again, and I keep, it's something I'm so attracted to and so drawn to, but I find so difficult to actually implement, but it keeps coming up again and again and again. The thing that I've done most recently, and by that I mean in the last three weeks, is having a 24-hour period every week when I turn my phone off, Mm. and that might not sound like a big thing, but I'm a millennial, (laughs) Alison. That's the big thing for us. And actually what I find, even if the rest of my day isn't that different to what I would normally be doing, it gives my brain a bit of a rest. And I do feel like I'm more engaged with my family, with whatever I'm doing. I feel like I'm more focused. And at the end of that 24 hour period, I don't really want to turn my phone back on. But then again, after then six days with it on, I find it then hard to turn it off again. But that's the main thing at the moment for me. How about you?
1: So, about oh no, a year ago, I stopped doing washing on a Sunday. Nice. Right. Which is quite a thing for me because I don't like to have washing piling up. So, how, <laughs> just to kind of mark it in some way. And then I went on a retreat in September and I knew that I was going with this theme of Sabbath buzzing around my head. But as part of that, I came back and decided I wasn't going to look at any social media on a Sunday at all so I don't do social media on a Sunday anymore whereas often it used to be the day that I caught up with all that and I make a pudding on a Sunday we have a dessert on a Sunday and we've been doing that for three, four weeks now and it's really nice so it's extra effort but actually it makes it makes that a special meal and a Mm. special event that sounds lovely yeah and just taking time to be and, and to kind of notice and to sort of step back and that that those things help to remind me that there is more to life than than busyness mm. and that you know I need to remember where God is in all of this and to just sit in the silence mm. not that I'd sit in the silence very often but you know if I can go pot up the garden for half an hour I'm happy
0: yeah There's a real challenge, I think, with the different images there are of Sabbath, because if you're in a family, then it can be difficult to make sure that Sabbath is a restful day or however long for everybody, because... You know, like you say, if part of your Sabbath is having a lovely meal together, someone's got to cook that meal, and you may yeah. not find that very restful. Yeah. Um, and, and so, there is a balance there. But also, if you're if you're a single person, there's that challenge that there's this big image of Sabbath, there's everyone gathering together, and and particularly at the moment when we can't gather together, then. That's a very tricky, tricky balance to to work out how Sabbath works for you. What's the best thing? There are lots of, I guess there can be expectations and pressures put on the idea of Sabbath itself, aren't there?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what is the norm? I mean, Nicola made it very clear that she thinks it's different for everybody. And depending on the stage of life, and, but also on who you are as a person and your circumstances. Mm. I think it goes back, for me, it goes back to the thing about being over busy. You know, I could fill every moment of every day doing something without any problem at all. Um, I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's choosing not to, which is important. Choosing to sort of stand back a bit and, and
0: take stock, yeah, and that's quite countercultural as well. The whole Sabbath thing is very countercultural. I really like she talked about the idea of Jewish people Sabbath starts at sunset on Friday night until sunset on Saturday night, and I do like that idea of Sabbath starting in an evening time. You almost start it with a meal and going to bed (laughs) and you're starting your Sabbath from a place of being well-rested, hopefully, depending on, again, your stage of life and whether you have small children or what your situation is. But I, I do like that. I mean, I don't think it really matters what day you do Sabbath on. Um, but finding a pattern that works well for you. It might work best for somebody to start it when they wake up in the morning. For others, they might go from lunchtime to lunchtime or or whatever. In reading her book, I don't think she really talked about this, but she she bases the, the chapters of her book on a poem by, is it Wendell Berry? Yeah. And the poem talks a lot about, it compares the working week to being like the fields that are tilled and tended and cared for and that we tame i suppose to to produce for us and then sabbath is referred to as being like going into the woods and going into the wildness
1: and i really like that image um what did you think of that when you were reading it Oh, it spoke to me so much. But interestingly, it wasn't the Wendell Berry poem that spoke to me. It was her poem. So there's a poem in the middle of the book that Nicola wrote about going into the woods. And that was the thing that spoke to me. Mm. Here's the poem. It's called Into the Woods by Nicola Lee, and it's in the book, Sabbath. "'Come into the woods,' she called. "'I cannot come yet,' I replied." I must finish my tasks i must answer my mother i must make myself neat i must make myself clever come into the woods she called i may not come yet it's dark in there and wet there are a thousand insects wild animals in the undergrowth evil spirits that will undo me come into the woods i will not come where the way is not clear where there are no maps, where the path bends out of sight, no guide to follow. Still she calls, come into the woods. I'm still counting the reasons for not going, still listening to my excuses, still looking back over my shoulder as I duck under the cool ferns, place my feet on the shady path into the woods. What do you think of that poem?
0: Yeah, I love that one as well. Um, you've reminded me of that. I love the re- the repetition of coming to the woods, like just ignoring all of the excuses and things, <laughs> not even trying to give an answer for them, just that call keeps coming. And I think we've both said that we've been um, repeatedly challenged about Sabbath, haven't we? It does mm. feel like that call comes back again and again, no matter how rubbish we might be actually answering it and doing something about it.
1: Yeah. God's saying, just come and spend some time with me. I want to be mm-hmm. with you. And if Christianity is about anything, it's about relationship with God. Mm. She mentioned um, a book by Margaret Hebblethwaite,
0: which isn't really to do with Sabbath, but it, it was when she mentioned it, it reminded me that that was a book that I read when I was um, pregnant with my first child I think I went to a practical theology conference or something whilst I was pregnant and somebody, I know, somebody, somebody there said, Oh, you should read this book. And I thought, okay, it's from 1984. So the book is older than I am, but I went and I got it secondhand (laughs) somewhere. Um, It's called Motherhood and God. And I absolutely loved that book. And Margaret Hebblethwaite, I think she's um, a Catholic author and she talks about um, the processes of motherhood. You know, um, she, she talks about pregnancy in it and talks about her own experiences of that and um, becoming a mother um, and compares it or, or uses it as a kind of analogy for our relationship with God. And she refers to God as she throughout. And that was one of the first things that I read that that does that. And in a very natural way, and uses all of these mothering images. I think Nicola talks about breastfeeding and that kind of thing, you know, as us kind of taking our energy and our sustenance and God giving us life, using that as an image. And I actually have bought a couple of copies of that book for friends of mine who've become new mothers since then, because it's it's brilliant and I recommend it to anybody. Whether you are a parent or not, if you're interested in ideas of God as mother or as female feminine then it's a really important book to read and very accessible so I would recommend it right that was off topic yeah. but she mentioned it and it reminded me oh
1: brilliant well why were <laughs> on book recommendations but you know yeah. I sneaked a few extra questions in at the end because I kept being oh I should ask you this she talked about faith and feminism by Nick Nicholas Lee brilliant oh, enough which yeah. um which I happen to have on my bookshelf. Um, you have everything on your bookshelf. <laughs> I know you have every book in the world. <laughs> it's just not true. And, and in her book, she talks about feminism in themes. So as an example, can a male saviour save women? Where mm. And she also recommended a book by Natalie Walker called Feminist Theology, which I then got and read. Of course. And... Um, <laughs> And now I found that really helpful as an overview of how the feminist movement developed, but this was a nice it 's a nice little summary in the in the first part of the book i 'm going to jump to the last question that we asked Nicola.
0: so she was saying that the most one of the more important issues affecting Christian women today is our climate catastrophe and coronavirus, and she was saying that the universe is saying to us to wake up to what
1: we're doing and how we're living what did you think about that i think she's right you know the whole abuse of of the planet's resources which we do with no kind of recognition of the damage that it's doing to places and people is terrifying when you stop and look, look at it isn't it um, you know how we waste things and use things and to be honest during the pandemic it's it's even worse I think so we're you know we've all gone back to using disposable cups rather than being given washable cups in some places face masks that's the other thing mm-hmm. the Do number you, of the number of disposable less. face masks that you find on the ground yeah so she was talking as well about um, using new words for god and creating new images for god which i thought was really important i mean we've talked quite a lot about that in the past and she also talks about christ the christ not being male which is freaks people out doesn't it mm-hmm. yeah um, i i think
0: jesus is always one of those people that people turn to and say well we know jesus was male <laughs> so it's okay to talk about God as male so the idea of the Christ being something separate from Jesus now the risen Christ uh not having gender, is a really interesting point that I think a lot of us haven't really thought about particularly
1: mm. um, so I thought it was interesting that she was a Methodist charismatic evangelical as a child and then went and studied theology and then became liberal and then became a feminist Anglican, which obviously is the root of all evil. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I've had quite a few people say to me over the years, well, you know, studying theology is dangerous. And obviously we are evidence of that, Grace, because, you know, we don't have a narrow theology that defines God strictly and makes us safe and reliable because we're going to do a certain thing in a certain way at a certain time. And and therefore, God is safe. Um, Mm. I I think that's really sad. I think it's this trying to put God in a strictly kind of walled box, I suppose, that whole idea of we can only do theology in one way and that's the right way and anything else is wrong. So rather than opening, opening us up to a wider view of who God is and how God works, and how god engages with us that's negated which is really sad i think that's really true okay i think we're there aren't we i think so see you next month bye bye
0: thank you for listening to this episode of recovering god podcast please remember to rate subscribe and tell others who you think will be interested you can follow us on Twitter at RecoveringGod, on Instagram, Recovering underscore God, or contact us by email at RecoveringGodPodcast at gmail.com.